0: Hi, this is Doc Stoll, and welcome to New Books and Jazz. Today I'll be speaking with the University of Colorado professor, musicologist, jazz pianist, Dr. Keith Waters, who will be talking about his new book, The Studio Recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet, 1965-1968, to published by Oxford University Press, 2011. The creative collaboration and subsequent compositions and recordings of quintet members Miles Davis, Wayne Shorter, Ron Carter, Herbie Hancock, and Tony Williams represent a remarkable three-and-one-half-year period of artistic exploration and innovation in jazz. Waters' finely nuanced and highly challenging analyses will give jazz aficionados new insights into the interplay of personalities and multi-layered elements within jazz composition. But the real essence and beauty of this book is that Waters has captured, as best as anyone could, the process of creation, where highly skilled, educated, and courageous musicians work together to forge new artistic and creative explorations. As quintet keyboardist Herbie Hancock wrote, When people were hearing us, they were hearing the avant-garde on one hand, and they were hearing the history of jazz that led up to it on the other hand, because Miles was that history. Waters, who had access to rehearsal reels, gives insight into the improviser's idea of controlled freedom as pieces evolve through experimentation, risk, and exploration, and then gives the reader analytical strategies and selected solo analyses from recordings from the second quintet's albums, ESP, Sorcerer, Nefertiti, Miles in the Skies, Miles Smiles, and Feed de Kilimanjaro. This is a remarkable work of scholarship and exposition of an exciting and seminal period in the evolution of jazz. We welcome Keith Waters to New Books in Jazz. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Keith Waters, the author of the studio recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet 1965 to 1968, published by Oxford University Press 2011. Why this particular part of Miles Davis' career? And what what led you to this?
1: Well, uh, this group and this collection of individuals uh, were always very important to me as a, as growing up as as a musician and a player and as a, an aspiring jazz musician, and um, they seemed to offer just really interesting responses. Um, to questions of how to play over standard tunes. So, um, in particular, the live recordings uh, involve the standard tune repertory. And there just seemed to be a never-ending wealth of, uh, of ability and and ways of doing things and reharmonizing and, and kind of metric challenges and um, j- just any number of interesting strategies for uh, up-and-coming players. And I think that that... They kind of created a vocabulary of of what was possible in the context of, of standard tune compositions so that's but that kind of addresses both the live recordings and I think that a lot of people who have written about this group have spent um, quite a bit of time with the live recordings uh, and less so with the studio recordings uh, The studio recordings also I, I I've just known about and have been listening to very diligently since I was probably about 14 or so, and I um, was always intrigued by them. There were kind of a lot of questions and open, uh, unsolved mysteries to me uh, about them, um, and I also realized that, that um, the way they were sometimes discussed or transmitted through, um, for example, in, in the appearance of lead sheets, in, in fake books um, were sometimes a little problematic or strange or incorrect or in, in any number of those things. So part of my interest was um, to spend a lot of time with those recordings and see if I could capture what was going on in, in them, maybe a little more faithfully than some of the um, some of the lead sheet renditions in, in sources like the real book had had, had done up, up, up till now, and um, but as well as. Discuss the the, the, um, the profound ways that that group um, interacted together. I mean, it was wasn't only they were a group that was more than the sum of their parts, um, and I think they just created a, a collective sound. And um, I think as musicians, had a lot of trust in one another, and were able to take lots of chances and um, set, them, set themselves up in really interesting ways. And and um, Kind of resolve them in, in interesting ways too, so that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. But, but I, I think for me that group was fairly foundational and pivotal for me as a, as an aspiring jazz player um, in my teens. And they are also a source of recordings I, I, I just I keep coming back to just they they, they offer so much for me.
0: Well, you dedicated the the book to your parents, and I thought we might go back to the beginning briefly. And and uh, they inspired you. Said they inspired your your love of music. Uh, tell us a little bit about um, you know how you grew up, where you grew up, and and how you came to the music of jazz.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so. Um I grew up in um, Long Island, New York, and lived there until I was about ten, and then moved to the South and ultimately went to junior high school and high school and undergraduate school in, in North Carolina. So I spent kind of about half of my until I was about ten in the North, and then then moved to the South until until my my early twenties, and. Um, My parents are both music lovers. My dad um, played piano. He was kind of a sing-along pianist, and we always had a lot of sheet music in the house. Um, My brother started when he was quite early. He's also a pianist and a musicologist, and and Bob, my brother, started when he was probably about three or so, and I started a little bit later. I started piano um, about the age of of nine or ten. and uh we just kind of surrounded by lots of different music and my parents uh um, I mean their their record collection was fairly wide ranging everything from Tchaikovsky to Alan Sherman and um everybody in between so um just you know, lots of music and and um you know music kind of represented something that that most of us were involved in doing and that we all all really liked doing and um uh, yeah so that that kind of um uh is how I initially got into it and kind of sparked my my love of music um my, my dad is just an amateur player, my mom who's not a musician but but also loved music. I think they were both just just fans of music in general, so a lot of music going on in the house and then um uh, probably as I got into junior high school or so, I um started getting into jazz. And I played in jazz bands and rock bands throughout junior high school and and high school and um sort of the probably the the typical route for many people and you know growing up in america and this sort of been the the seventies 70s, late seventies 70s, um, just playing in jazz band and the um um, in in high school, mo- most high schools at that time and still do, I suppose, have um, have big bands that I played in and kind of cut my chops there and and you know working in smaller combos and learning tunes and and all of that and. Um and from there, I ended up going to um, uh, study piano. I, I did a, a classical piano degree at the University of North Carolina and um, went that whole route. And I, mostly, I, I was interested in studying classical music and and kind of as a means to an end, as kind of to serve jazz purposes. And. It was, you know, made clear to me that since um, piano being a classical instrument, um, it's often necessary to kind of develop those sorts of techniques, um, you know, to develop some proficiency in in jazz and, and have that that technical foundation. So, so I did that, and um, at the same time, getting sort of regularly into the, the the gig scene as a as a high school and college student and um, learning tunes and. Working with different players and and, and all of that, and um, um, ultimately, I ended up going and doing a jazz piano degree at New England Conservatory, and then moving to Washington, D.C., and then playing there professionally for for a number of years. So I spent the, the second half of the '80s in in Washington and uh, doing a, a bit of touring, but but mostly based in in Washington, D.C. and um, yeah, so that was kind of the, uh, the the arc, I suppose, of my my performance career.
0: You mentioned that you kind of dug these. The, the Miles Davis, the second quintet, when you were, say, 14, that's pretty sophisticated music to understand. I remember in high school, I remember just the album cover of Bitches Brew, which I think came <laughs> a little bit after that, and thinking this is the most wild
1: music I'd, I'd ever heard. Yeah, liking and digging the music may be different than understanding the music. <laughs> I'm okay. still not sure I, I really completely understand it, but I think I understand more now than I did back then. Um, but yeah, I, um, I, I think the, in particular, the ways that these players kind of fuse traditional musical values with um, maybe more avant-garde musical values. Um, and I, you know, my interest wasn't so much in, in free jazz and avant-garde jazz as it was in traditional jazz, but traditional jazz that was done, um, you know, in a kind of creative fashion, and you know that that particular group seemed to be the epitome of what you could do in terms of um, thinking about or reinvigorating kind of traditional, you know, ideas or traditional notions of jazz and reinvigorating it with, um, with, with newer ideas and fresh ideas and things that always seem to be very creative and um, and innovative and, and, and all of those, those sorts of things. So that was, that was kind of the part of it that, that I responded to. And, and, you know, I have to confess, it's interesting to me after, working on the book and doing some transcribing, how um, uh, I I guess that allowed me to be aware of some of the things that were going on in the music that I was unaware of when I was 14 or 15 or even 25. So, um, you know, I mean, a lot of great music, (laughs) it's helpful to spend uh, uh, a really long time with and I guess that's kind of what makes it great in, in some ways.
0: Learning your own history. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, the, the, you do a great job at, at setting up the, the players, uh, Herbie Hancock, uh, Wayne Shorter, Tony Williams, Ron Carter, and Miles Davis, of course. And alluding back to something you mentioned uh, a couple minutes earlier, you start the book with this whole idea of the act of Creation. I don't know if the act of creation was, was your phrase, but just on how they interacted, and I thought that mm-hmm. was so interesting. And I mentioned in an email conversation with you about Wayne Shorter's quote about DNA. Uh, might talk a little bit about that and the approach to jazz composition that, that these five players had
1: in their studio recordings yes i think a number of writers have used the term uh workshop" in terms of the way that they are it's kind of their participatory role in in, in recording in, in the studio and i think it's, it's uh, uh, um captures it from from what I can tell pretty well and i I was lucky enough to get some of the um the studio reels of some of the rehearsals and uh it it, it was actually very revealing and somewhat comforting in some ways because um this the session reel that I described for um freedom jazz dance um they go through many takes as they're working on it and they're they're trying any number of different things so as they're working through the uh through the takes um you know for example at one point miles davis has tony williams play woodblocks and then says no that just, just sounds terrible let's not do that and and other people are suggesting other things to do and uh maybe a different bass lick um underneath uh, Miles Davis is suggesting Tony Williams other things about rhythm and playing triplets underneath and Herbie Hancock is suggesting this and that. So so all of the um, players and, and performers seem to be taking a really active role in, in, in shaping the performance. And I, I guess I had always... Been under the impression that these guys just went in the studio and just did it the first take, and they, you know, that's all they needed and, and everything. But it, it is interesting to hear those session reels because they're really thinking and revising and um, and offering lots of interesting challenges to the to the original idea of the the, the tune. And I, I talk a little bit also about um, the tune madness. Which uh, appears on, on one of the later recordings, and on "Madness," it was—it's um, been. Excuse me, the, the rehearsal take um, is available now, and they perform "Madness" in the rehearsal take as just a very slow, dreamy waltz, and that must have been the original conception. It's a Herbie Hancock tune, and. Uh, But the the final release take is something very different, and they eliminate about half of the tune, and they speed it up, and they change the meter, and there are all these kind of, you know, interesting transformations that that the tune takes. So, uh, you know, there's kind of a a, a process of editing and revision going on uh, in the studio that that I I found very, very fascinating. And it also seemed to me clear that... um, Miles Davis, who's sometimes described as a one-take musician, uh, is anything but that in these these recordings. As they're working through and and seems to have maybe uh, not exactly uh, the end uh, or, or, or the final result in mind initially, but through the process of kind of working out and, and experimenting and, and trying different things, um, getting to a place where each of those those tunes have have a real kind of definitive stamp and and, and definitive personality. And um, I, I think that's reason, uh, a reason why the tunes, uh, to me, sound very different from one another. Because I, I think uh, there's a kind of active process of giving each of those tunes a particular personality, and that pers- And it's hard to say how much of that personality comes from from Miles himself in terms of his decisions, and how much comes from the other other players. Um, you know, that's the thing about collaborative efforts. You never really know what the percentage is of, of who's contributing what, and whether it's Ellington Strayhorn or whoever, you know, any collaborative efforts. And um, I guess all that's to say that um, it seems to me that all the members of the quintet are, are participating and helping shape and mold these compositions, and they often come in with just... Kind of a fleeting sketch, or you know, a kind of basic idea, and these compositions really get dismembered and changed and altered, and um, you know, any number of things m- might happen in the course of the uh, uh, of the, uh, the recording process. I
0: appreciated that so much. I've always been very interested in creativity in the act of creation, and that. Really comes out, and then of course the end result are the solos that you transcribe, and so the reader can actually see and listen to the, that that final result. And looking at one of Herbie's uh, solos, or Wayne Shorner's solos, or Miles's solos, but mm-hmm. there's all that there's all that happens on the front end to where they they finally get this one
1: piece. Exactly, exactly. And um, what I can tell from this, the session reels that I have heard, the discussion seems to be all about um, setting up the, the, the head of the tune. So it's to say the, the, the statement of the melody that happens before the solos. There doesn't seem to be much discussion of the solos. Um, at one point, I think, in the, the rehearsal for Freedom Jazz Dance, um, which was done as a kind of straight-eighth, almost proto-rock feel um in, in one of the session reels um early on uh they go into more of a swing feel and miles stops through the band and says no let's, let's just keep it keep the rhythm the same way it was um and that's kind of the only evidence i've, I've seen of, of really discussion of what happens during the solos so um uh, and, and again what with what, what the stuff that i have the evidence that i have is, is fairly limited it's just a couple of session reels and, and some of the other um rehearsal tracks that have been you know released commercially um it, it does seem to be uh Primarily setting up, as I said, the the personality or the original stamp of of each of those compositions, uh, and particularly the way that um, it's going to come out in the head statements. And then, uh, you know, during the solo statements, seems like all all sorts of things happen just from what I can tell spontaneously. Um, And some of the things that I talk about, too, have to do with... um, even kind of problems, or you would—I don't want to describe them as mistakes because that's that's part of the the whole kind of creative process, and, um, and the way that they the players kind of accommodate for one another. So you know, I have a few spots where. One or another player maybe drops a beat, and somebody steps in and and kind of helps shore everybody up and kind of get everybody back in line and, and and everything and so there did seem to be a lot of a degree of trust and um and working together and participation and, and um and the, the group seemed to really delight in the fact of kind of setting up, is you're going out on a limb in particular ways. And then, um, you know, sometimes it might get a little funny, but um, or not funny, that's not really the right word, but exactly the right word, but sometimes it might get a little dicey, um, but then someone will come in and, and anchor it and, and kind of um, uh, rescue it in, in, in a really interesting and, and creative way. So that's kind of all of the process, I suppose, of of improvisation. And, um, you know, it's a bit of a warts and all kind of approach. But when you have players at this level of um, professionalism, and, you know, I mean, these are among the the greatest players of of their time, um, you know, even those sorts of challenges or when things get a little dicey, they always land on their feet and they always do it in in really elegant ways. So that's kind of the, the fun aspect of it, too. I was
0: grasping at some analogy, some wild analogy, almost like a couple of special forces guys being dropped into the Amazon rainforest and <laughs> and, and, and navigating it because you talk about the that all of them with the exception of Tony Williams had also had 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 recorded extensively and had composed extensively, and Tony Williams was kind of this uh, this young superstar and rhythmic genius that somehow
1: mm-hmm. fit with, with the other four of them. Exactly, yeah, he was kind of a wunderkind. I mean, he was 17, I think, when he joined Miles's quintet, and... Um and yeah, it's quite amazing. And I think he brought a lot of kind of energy and passion and discipline. And and there are stories in Miles's autobiography where he talks about how, um, you know, Miles was he he described himself as getting complacent about practicing. And now Tony Williams really um, almost kind of uh, I don't know what the word would be, but the, but um, but because of Tony Williams' sort of sense of energy and discipline, it it, it sort of. Um, uh, was a bit of a catalyst for, for miles to, to begin practicing again. And, uh, um, uh, and all that. So, uh, he also brought a lot of, uh, interest in different types of music. And I think that there's a, uh, quote I, I, mentioned in the book where Herbie Hancock said, where he was not really, uh, he himself, Hancock was not, um, terribly interested initially in the music of Ornette Coleman, but how it was Tony Williams that kind of turned him onto Ornette Coleman and got him into the point where he could, he could really get into it. And, um, So I I think uh, Williams is kind of an interesting character just because, you know, you have someone who's so youthful and so energetic and so, um, so had brought the drums to to such a high level of, of, um, uh, kind of conception, um, at, at such a young age. I mean, it's really quite, quite remarkable. And, you know, most of those guys were, were pretty young. I think Hancock was probably 23 when he joined the group and, um, uh, Carter and shorter I think we're a little bit older and um, but but you know they're all fairly young and I, I think uh, miles is probably one of those uh, figures who's intensely creative uh, and eager to collaborate with people who are um, creative on that same level and probably, um, you know, sparks his own own sort of creativity. I think in particular ways, and, um, and, and I think that band really really did that, and and probably changed the direction of um, you know for for, for Davis and, and what he was doing, and and uh, you know in terms of what was possible to do, and uh, say rhythm section accompaniment and, and that sort of thing, and and interesting you know metric and harmonics sorts of shifts and and adjusting to those. So. Um, you know, I think Davis is just a very, very flexible, open kind of, um, you know, intensely um, creative kind of individual and just responded um, really well. It was just a kind of, you know, a happy synthesis of of all these, these five individuals.
0: Let's talk about that a minute. You, you had a, a quote uh, early on in your book. I think it was by Herbie Hancock. Who was essentially saying that many of these recordings, they were drawing upon the whole history of jazz, which was Miles, but then because of the unique characteristics and set of skills and creativity, these other musicians they were taking jazz in a different direction. So, what was this different direction? How were these recordings different?
1: Yeah. So, you talk to use the term control, control. Controlled freedom to describe what they were doing, and and I think um, uh, part of the answer to your question, I, I, I think it's a it, it's an excellent question, and I think part of the answer to the question has to do with the environment of the times. And I remember speaking with the pianist Mel Waldron, who had recorded with Booker Little and Eric Dolphy, and uh, I was kind of chatting to him just about the the, the the temperature of the times of the '60s, say the maybe '19, really well, the entire decade, but but. I guess I was particularly interested in the first half of the decade of the, of the sixties from 1960 to 1965 and, and asking about just the role of um, free jazz and performers like Ornette Coleman. And he, and his response to me was um, essentially all the musicians that were out there, all the jazz musicians were, you had to respond to what Ornette Coleman was doing in some way or another. And it could be, the response could be just negative. Like I'm, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do that. Um, but you know, once I think the, the, some of the, the free jazz players, and particularly Ornette Coleman, um, were on the scene and, um, uh, you know, fairly visible, I think most serious jazz players, um, it, it, it changed the dynamics of the, of the game, I think, to a certain extent. And, um, and even Booker Little, who was the, um, the trumpeter that Mal Waldron, um, had worked with. Uh, he described it in just in terms of almost like using a political metaphor, like that when Ornette came out he, he kind of had to move, he, Booker Little, had to move a, a little bit further to, to the left to accommodate uh, what it was that, that Ornette had, had done. So all this is to say that the, the picture in the early 60s is one which um, all players, um, even if they're more traditionalists, are in some way responding to the innovations of, of the free jazz players. And they're yeah. doing it uh, either in, in a negative way, uh, they might be doing it in a completely positive way by embracing free jazz wholeheartedly, or they could be doing it in a way that I think this group did, which was kind of, in a way, split the difference. So they're they're still coming out of that traditional um, side of things, that, that's who they were, but they were also... Um, had big enough ears and big enough um, interests that they, they could also incorporate some of the innovations of what the free jazz players were were doing, and I think that that 's probably what Hancock was getting at with the idea of controlled freedom, so the idea of control may be more of the traditional side of things and then the freedom of i think refers to to the some of the innovations of, of free jazz players so um, I I, I think there was a lot of that going on during the the 1960s, and I mean, if you think about what John Coltrane was doing or even later groups that sort of in the wake of Coltrane or that were influenced by John Coltrane, like Charles Lloyd, who uh, was one of the first early employers of, of Keith Jarrett. Um, you know, any number of those groups were kind of, um, spanning that gap in between traditional approaches and, and free jazz approaches. And, and sometimes even within a single composition, you would hear them kind of moving inside and outside and, and getting very, very free and, and then returning to, you know, more kind of traditional roles of, of keeping time and, and that sort of thing. So, um, uh, to me, uh, though, this group I, I think is one of those groups that were able to kind of span that that gap from traditional to freer approaches, and do it in a way that um, I, I think still just sounds very, very fresh and very strong to me. And I think that that what they did kind of provided the vocabulary for you know those of us that grew up grew up. When I grew up, and then you know even younger players too, so I, I think you do find a lot of players still going back to those recordings and using them as as really important models um, in terms of soloing and in terms of um, rhythm section, um, accompanimental sorts of possibilities and, and, and all you know all of those sorts of things, I think um, are um, you know we're just widely. Hugely influential for, for you know everyone that came afterwards. So, so I guess in the same way that those players in the 1960s had to address you know the innovations of free jazz, I, I think all of us that came after the the, the Miles Second Quintet had to kind of address their particular innovations, and, and most of us I think have have tried to absorb them in, in one way or another and, and make them a part of you know what what it is that, that we do
0: as i recall keith at at the end of your book you even talked about winton marsalis as, in the early part of his career kind of embracing their approach before he took on more traditional standards of the type elements is that a fair characterization
1: yeah yeah i i guess right but he's he's often um positioned or depicted, characterized as someone who represents a a very neo-traditionalist stance and uh, someone whose um, interest is in um, maintaining the the traditions of of much earlier forms of jazz. So, for example, uh, Louis Armstrong and and Duke Ellington in particular seem to be very, very critical for for Wittenmar But, But in his early career... after he played with Blakey, um, he did record with all of the um, the, the rhythm, rhythm section of, of the second quintet, and even his own group with Kenny Kirkland and Branford Marcellus, I think in many ways was modeled on that that quartet, so I think um, prior, it was probably, I don't remember exactly the, the year, but probably around 86 or 87, that um, Went Marcellus seemed to um, take on a little bit more of uh, the role that we associate with now as a kind of neo-traditionalist or whatever term you want to, want to use. But um, I think his recordings prior to that really did reflect the influence of the Second Quintet, uh, both in, by the fact that he recorded with them. He also toured with, with Hancock um, during the, the mid-'80s, too, <clears throat> and then also with, with his own group, um, which I think um, a number of the compositions seem to be very in, in, inspired by the, by the Second Quintet. Um, so yeah, I, I think the influence of that group um had lots of was, was multidimensional in in the final chapter of the book. I, I talked a little bit about that, just the, the, the role of um both in terms of returns to tradition, which, you know, the idea well, I I guess you have to think about what happened directly after the the quintet broke up and that was that Miles moved to uh, incorporating um, electric instruments and rhythms and, rock right. and <clears throat> helping, um, you know, participating fairly strongly in the, in the type of jazz that we know now as jazz rock fusion. And um, so those final recordings of the, of the second quintet kind of um, step towards that direction in a certain way by, by using electric instruments, electric bass, electric piano, and um, sometimes simpler harmonic structures, uh, more characteristic of rock, and also the use of use of rock rhythms. So, um, so that's a kind of particular legacy I think of the quintet that was quite um, significant, particularly uh, during the 1970s when there was um, a, a large move towards um, towards jazz rock fusion. Um, and then, you know, in, in the 80s too, I think once um, you know the ideas of return tradition, tra- excuse me, return tra- 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 tradition. And um, the the notion of bringing back, um, not that they ever went away, but, but the, the, the kind of general idea of bringing back acoustic instruments and more standard um, timekeeping roles and walking bass and uh, more traditional accompanimental roles, um, I think at that time, too, you know, the, that was another time when people were still interested in exploring the legacy of of the Davis Second Quintet. So um, I I guess all of that's to say that the influence that the group had was multidimensional and it encompassed both jazz rock fusion of the 1970s and then some of the returns to traditionalism of the the 1980s and certainly the ideas of returning to acoustic instruments and more um, standard traditional timekeeping roles and, and, and that sort of thing.
0: Yeah, fascinating. Well, let's switch gears, and I almost hesitate to ask you this question, uh, but but and I know you teach music theory, and you're you're an expert in that. But I I imagine you do teach uh, general appreciation classes and, and undergraduate courses in the history of jazz. You have a textbook out that came out in 2005. I was uh, looking at that. How would you explain modal jazz to the casual jazz listener who doesn't necessarily have a lot of theoretical background? How would you explain that to them?
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good question. Um, I I I get into that in you know fairly uh, a fairly detailed explanation or discussion. I've got all your six. uh,
0: I've got your six in front of me right here, but it it blew my mind. (laughs) At, looking at... at well, it's, the, just the that it's,
1: it's one of those terms that everybody thinks that they know what it is, but then right. once you start uh, probing beneath the surface, people sometimes have very, very different opinions about, about what it is. I guess I would, I would suggest that for listeners, um, or the examples of modal jazz, the, the exemplars are um, a couple of compositions on Kind of Blue of Miles Davis from 1959. Uh, and those two compositions are So What and um, Flamenco Sketches. And in So What in Flamenco Sketches, it, it has a very open, uncluttered, um, what would be some other adjectives to use? Um, free is not exactly the right word, but just, just, just open and uncluttered sound. And that, that comes about because there aren't a lot of chords and the chords don't change all that frequently. So you have a, a kind of canvas. If you think about it as, as a painter, there's the the, the background might be um, maybe more of a, of a single color or just a few colors in in, in the background. Um, and the if you maybe think about that as the the modal jazz aspect you know that the harmonies are are infrequent and they don't change all that much and they provide something that that allows a kind of degree of openness for the for the foreground which I guess for for uh, in jazz would be the, the soloists so there's a sense in that music it's very airy and it's very spacious um, and allows that sort of um, sense to, to come out Uh I I guess um I, I don't want to stop there because I, I would say the other kind of exemplar of modal jazz, um kind of important exemplar, uh, would be the would be John Coltrane and his classic quartet of the nineteen sixties. And um that also shares that same property of not many chord changes. Um, but I, I think the the aesthetic of that music may be a little different I, and I don't know that I would describe John Coltrane's classic quartet as being airy and spacious and in, in fact it's often very intense and there's a kind of urgency to the music. But it shares that same property of of having very few chords... And for Coltrane, the interesting thing is that then it allows his solos to kind of move in and out um, of phase with the underlying um, harmony. So you hear the way that it's often described as the music is, is inside and then sometimes it moves outside and then it goes back inside again. And um, and I think that's a kind of important um, technique or important thing to, to hear with Coltrane, that part of that intensity and the urgency um, revolves around the way that that Coltrane's uh, improvisations often move inside and outside with the with the underlying um, sort of uh, the harmony, slow moving moving harmony. Uh, the, the term modal jazz, the, the 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 word itself really has to do with the use of the scale or a mode, um, and I think that's that's maybe one aspect of the music. But I would say for for listeners, it's about having fewer chords. And giving, um, you know, it's a bit of a broader canvas I think, on which um, improvisers can can paint or work or do what it is that they're that they're doing. So I, I, I could say more about it, but I but I think I don't want to overcomplicate it either. Um, I I think those those kind of get at some of the the ideas of modal jazz, but um, it, it is one of those terms that that is quite complicated, and that as I said, different people have very different opinions about. Uh, but, but where I do think people agree is that the uh, the 1959 recording, kind of blue of Miles Davis, has a number of compositions that we regard as, as some of the, the earliest and mo- most important examples of modal jazz. And then the recordings of John Coltrane, the, his classic um, quartet of the, of the early 1960s, uh, "A Love Supreme," uh, "My Favorite Things." Um, for those people that that know those recordings, you, they might be aware that the the underlying harmonies don't really move all that much, and um, it kind of gives a, you know you're, you're sort of painting with a different medium I suppose in, in a way
0: yeah and, and I, at, at the risk of totally muddying this up and I'll edit it out <laughs> if, if I do keep but um, you usually uh, don't you associate um, those harmonic changes more with telling a story in a classical sense um, and when you don't have those harmonic changes, you, you don't emphasize those as much. As you said, there's more room to meander. And I was trying to come up with some kind of analogy, and analogies always fail somewhere. But I was thinking of non-traditional comedians in the 80s, where they would start telling a story and it wouldn't follow that Aristotelian arc, but it would meander all over the place. And I was thinking of somebody like mm-hmm. Shecky Green or even Richard Pryor. You didn't know what the heck they were doing, but somehow at the mm-hmm. end, you had this organic piece without kind of the traditional storytelling elements. That's the best I could do.
1: I, I, yeah, it, no, know, I, I like that analogy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, yeah, I, I ideas of direction or, or, you know, narrative arc or, or whatever, I, I think, yeah, you're, you're kind of getting at, at some of those, those sorts of things. Um, and I suppose, too, um, yeah, I mean, with with Coltrane, you know, you're talking about someone that would do improvisations that sometimes lasted for 20 minutes, and people would describe it, uh, you know, as as being a white noise, and, and other people described as playing as like speaking in tongues. I mean, there's you know any number of kind of interesting ways that that people uh, res- responded to to Coltrane's music, and it's just of a of a sheer scope and uh, length that's um, that's quite quite amazing. And, um, I mean, for people that are, that are interested in that, I, I think the, the Ken Burns Jazz series has some really excellent commentary on Coltrane. And some of those ideas that I just mentioned in terms of the, the, the idea of white noise and speaking of tongues comes, comes directly from the, the Ken Burns, um, series and the discussion of, of, um, Coltrane there. So, um, yeah, and when you're doing things on, on that particular, at that scope, um, yeah, you're, you're, you're just, Asking different things, I think, of the listener, I suppose, and not always the the traditional expectations that are. That yeah, are set that's a up. great way to put it.
0: You're you're asking different things of the listener. The the normal expectations you have to suspend disbelief on that, and and, and maybe that's the yeah. beauty of these these recordings in the Miles this, the Second Quintet is that they seem to be so different from what came before. And why don't we talk about a, a couple of those maybe for the listeners who might want to get a representative sample. Uh, let, let's start. You, you, you listed uh, six albums uh, and the first was mm-hmm. ESP. Is there a particular, mm-hmm. if you're pointing, yeah, from that album, uh, is, there, is there a particular song from there that you would point to maybe people who wanted to start appreciate that particular approach?
1: I guess I would say maybe the uh, the title composition of ESP is is kind of interesting, and it it it, it uses this kind of um, ambiguous interval. It's based on um, these perfect fourths that, that the melody states, and so it's a little um, harmonically, it, you know. It, in some ways, I, I suppose it, it's conventional, but then melodically, it's it's somewhat unconventional, and it. It does kind of get at a little bit of this this openness or this open sound that um, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm describing or I was describing with modal jazz. Now, I, I wouldn't consider ESP to be a modal jazz piece, but, but I, I think that there are these issues of openness and expo- exploration and ambiguity and some of those things that are going on in those pieces that are... That are um, are quite uh, in excuse me in, in that piece in, in ESP that that's really quite interesting, and um, and there are just a number of different ways to hear it. You could just hear it as a sort of traditional, you know, hard bop composition with walking bass and it's in four um, four. But it, you know, if, once you kind of get beyond the surface and scratch the surface a little bit, uh, there's a lot of other things that are that are going on there, and um, and then even some of the participatory excuse me the participatory. Um, sorts of things that I talk about um, in different spots in the book um, happen there. So for example the end of Miles Davis's solo he ends with a particular idea and that's, in Herbie Hancock when he starts his solo, he just, he starts with that same idea, just kind of repeating it and, and then developing it in, in particular ways. So, um, so lots of, you know, uh, interesting things going on in terms of group participation. Um, I mean, Tony Williams, uh, just his, his accompaniment, you know, in, in general is quite quite tremendous, and and all of the players. Is, it's really quite um, quite interesting. And uh, again, you know, a little bit of this controlled freedom idea, where it's you. As I said, you can read it as a as a sort of more of a standard kind of traditional jazz piece that's in four four with walking bass. Um, but then actually, there's there's a lot more going on than than you might might realize if you if you start paying attention to to that. So that that might be a good a good kind of entry piece for the for that. Okay. The,
0: so the title the title piece ESP. Okay. Let's take a look at Miles' smiles. What's a good piece okay. for somebody to, to pick out and just begin to appreciate the quintet from uh, would, that particular yeah, album? Yeah,
1: I would say, um, I mean, they're they're all great. <laughs> uh, they're all quite amazing. I'm, I'll say a few things about a couple of different tunes before I. Actually, answer your question, but uh, I'll, uh, so the tune "Orbits" is quite interesting for some of the reasons that I was describing with ESP. Is that there's a there's a kind of cat and mouse game going on as each of the new soloists come in and they're they're responding to what the previous soloist did and and using that and kind of developing. Then "Orbits" also has a kind of open quality to it because it's um, something that's referred to as time no changes, which means that the bass player is walking the bass in a sort of standard traditional four uh, four. Um, uh, approach, the drummer is accompanying in that same uh, traditional way, uh, but it, the, the song itself is not really um, following um, a, a chord progression. In the fact, when during the horn solos, there's no accompaniment by, by piano. So it's just the the bass and drums accompanying the horns, and it, it's kind of a free-flowing sort of thing, so it would be another example of the control of freedom. But I, I will say that the, I think the song that um, is just as I mentioned in the book, is just one of the highlights of the decade. Is um, Circle, which now, is that knocked cult. me out. And um, yeah. yeah, it's it's just it's just an amazing piece. I mean, it, and it it says uh, so much about who Miles Davis was in terms of that particular aesthetic. I mean, it's a kind of it's got a brooding sort of. Um, uh, quality to it, but I, at, at the same time, it, it just has this this level of kind of lyricism and expression that I think is just um, uh, you know it, it, it's kind of about as good as it gets. <laughs> I,
0: I, I thought that, it was like and, a and religious solos. meditation almost, uh, just that you could yeah. close your eyes and and listen to that a hundred times, a thousand times.
1: It's yeah, it's it, it's quite spectacular, I, I think, and just just every level. Um, and I discuss a little bit about the form because you know they're, they're taking some some risks with it, with the form too. But it, it sounds so effortless and so uh, you know it just just gets that sense of of Miles Davis's lyricism. And he plays muted trumpet, and it got that um, that whole quality of um, you know as I mentioned before, kind of brooding melodic lyric quality. And um, yeah, it's just quite quite an amazingly beautiful and um transcendental kind of kind of piece. So yeah. that may be I have to confess that may be my favorite of the whole output of the of the group. But but anyway, um yeah, okay, and then okay. and after
0: Sorcerer, yeah, Sor- even the title plays into the whole Miles Davis persona and and you have some you know anecdotal things about that too. Uh, what's a good piece from Sorcerer? for people who aren't familiar with the second quintet to listen to?
1: Let's see. Well, uh, the the title piece, I, I think, of that is, is really good and interesting. And, and so Sorcerer was a, a composition written by Herbie Hancock, and he he used the title, uh, or he named the song, really kind of in honor of Miles Davis, because he really claimed that, that Miles was kind of a, a musical sorcerer and that a lot of times he would that Miles would come up with these ideas, and he just had no idea where that came from. And, you know, that seemed to be a, a big reaction of, of so many players that, that played with Miles, is that um, just the, the ideas that they came out um, were just often so fresh and so in the moment and so responsive to what was going on, and, um, you know, and Miles just having these amazingly huge ears. And, and uh, I mean, Hancock even tells a story about playing in... I think Germany, where he uh, they're playing a standard tune and and Hancock makes he just he hits the wrong chord he just goes to the you know the wrong chord too too soon or something like that and uh so that you know miles just what he played over it just fit perfectly with what he did, so even though it was you know quote unquote a mistake that Hancock played at, at that point in in the tune you know what it was that miles played over was exactly you know responded to to what was going on, so it wasn 't it wasn't taken as a mistake. It was. It was taken as, oh, okay. Here's what's going on musically, and and so this is how I'm going to uh, make the most of that particular moment. So anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I guess that kind of says a little something about the mystique of Miles for, um, for those players, and they. The esteem which uh, most of them held, and so I, I, I guess I, I think that the title Never Naverditi might be the, uh, would, would be the one to uh, to pay attention to in that. But they're all they're all pretty good too.
0: I love that uh, that anecdote you told about the the, the quote mistaken chord, but it, it kind of reminded me of. Of a great wide receiver quarterback combo, and they have played together. And the guy runs the wrong route, and the quarterback adjusts and throws mm-hmm. it over his back shoulder, and it goes for a touchdown. Uh, <laughs> it's like a busted play with great athletes. They yeah, take exactly. exactly. something even better, and that's that's I guess that's what defines the the really great jazz players too. Is
1: yeah, it know, becomes a kind of alchemy in a way because you just take that, or you're you know making lemonade out of out of the lemons that that you know occasionally show up. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I, just just to say, we're you know, for lesser players, it, it might be kind of interpreted as a mistake, and and um, you know, not not even acknowledged or dealt with or whatever. But here, with you know, these label, levels of players, you know, they're just kind of it, it's a kind of real improvisational spirit that's going on. You know, in terms of of what's what's getting offered and and the way that you kind of deal with it. You know, at the in, in the flow of the moment.
0: Okay, let's go to another album I remember buying this this album. I I lived in Palo Alto at the time and there was this it looked like a big box. It was called called the record store and I remember going in and and getting Miles in the Sky and the one I was listening to this morning before the call was Black Comedy, Tony Williams, uh, just kind of mesmerizing. He was mesmerizing everywhere. <laughs> But anyway, talk a little bit about what what, was it, what would be a good introductory song from Miles in the Sky.
1: From Miles in the Sky, uh, let me think about this for a minute. Um, that's a kind of, it, it's a very interesting album because it really reflects a kind of departure. This is the first time, actually, that, that Herbie Hancock ever played uh, electric piano uh, when he was confronted with uh, Fender Rhodes' piano in the studio, and he was kind of surprised and asked miles you know what's this toy doing here and miles says that's that's the piano you know we want you to play on on some of these tracks so um so I might say that um, uh, as a kind of early document in the on the road to to jazz rock fusion that the the composition stuff might be kind of mm. an interesting one because it's got electric piano it's got a kind of boogaloo rhythm and um it's uh it, but it's kind of abstract in a, in a way too so it's it's you know the thing that miles davis excels in is is taking some dimensions of the music that that would be very kind of commonplace or familiar you know in this case the kind of the, the basic rock beat and the and the, the you know um, some of the harmonies but then the melody itself is very uh just these kind of short abstract little things i mean if you think about like a a painting this would be sort of like a pointillistic kind of painting and the use in terms of, of melody and the way that that melody comes back so um so uh, I think that's a kind of interesting one just just because it, it, it points the way a little bit forward but it also shows the way that that um, I, I think Miles Davis and, and his relationship to jazz rock fusion um, is, is often kind of an interesting and, and maybe more complicated than it's sometimes depicted because Um, You know, ideas of Jazz Rock Fusion and the use of Jazz Rock Fusion, as I mentioned in the book, you know, are kind of, um, were controversial, and they're still controversial, and, you know, there are people that accused Miles Davis and and Herbie Hancock and other people of selling out and and all that, but um, with Miles, there's still this element of kind of abstraction going on, and I think that... um, You know, he's just interested in taking different, you know, materials and and working, reworking them in in different ways. I mean, I think Miles is a lot like, you know, somebody like Picasso who goes through all of these different stylistic evolutions and and all of them are influential and a lot of people spend spend their entire careers just just selecting one piece of that long career and, you know, devoting it to whatever, you know, whether it's for Miles, it's cool jazz or, or hard bop or some of these modal things or, you know, jazz rock fusion and, I mean, any number of other things in between, too. So, um, I, you know, it is, it, it's hard for me not to think of Miles outside of, you know, this, this analogy of, of painting or, or the use of, of just using lots of different materials. And, um, you know, I think it's in some ways it's sort of unfortunate that that ideas of Jazz Rock Fusion remain so controversial or are often depicted as, as a kind of commercial selling out um, because I, I think sometimes that that doesn't allow us to pay attention to some of the more interesting or, or complex or ambiguous or whatever the use, of, use of the, the materials that, that's going on. So that's a quite long-winded answer, I suppose, to your question about which piece to pay attention to on Miles in the Sky. Um, but, but I think stuff, because of its relation to, to jazz rock fusion as a kind of early work, and as this would have been Hancock's first uh, time playing electric piano, recording with electric piano, it, it definitely
0: portended, and you know we're we're close contemporaries in age, Keith. But I do remember I was I was one of the few who was into jazz very early, but I know that the the, the fusion era drew a lot of people, and you mentioned this also in your book. It, it drew a lot of people to jazz, who were kind of diehard rock and roll people, and they started to cross over because of that. Yeah. I skipped um, right. Nefertiti, so let's go back. What would be a good uh, a good uh, cut to listen to from Nefertiti that uh, somebody who well, was yeah, just
1: I, getting... I, I to, keep, I to yeah, I hate to keep selecting title cuts, but but the track yeah, Nefertiti okay. is kind of interesting too because um, it suggests something very different from Miles here too. And in, in this, the the unusual aspect of Nefertiti is that they're uh, unlike every other recording on all of the. Um, set of recordings that that this group issued, um, there are no um, improvisations in the traditional sense on Nefertiti, and it consists solely of just the the group um, restating the melody to to Nefertiti over and over. So the improvisation that happens... Mm -hmm. Um, really takes place with the, the, the rhythm section uh, while the horns are, are, are playing this melody over and over. Some people have described Nefertiti as a concerto for drums for Tony Williams because of yeah. just the role of, of what he's, he's doing. It's kind of an interesting way to, to think about it. Um, another way to think about it is just that it's a, it's a reversal of the roles. So it's the, the horns are doing the kind of... Um, Accompanimental part by by restating the melody, and it's the rhythm section that's actually doing the 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 improvising um, kind of simultaneously with the, with the statements. So it's quite interesting. And I think the other thing too, you know, in terms of Miles's music as setting a particular mood, and you know, just giving over the entire composition to the to this idea of of a particular mood and um, you know a kind of particular color. I, I think it's, it's just a great, great example of that. I mean, I, I think, um, despite all, you know, I spend a lot of time with the, the details of the music, but, but a lot of times, you know, there's, there's an overall kind of affect and mood that I think that, that, that musicians are trying to strike. And I think with Nefertiti, that's, that's um, you know, kind of a great example of, of hearing a piece as, as just kind of depicting, you know, that kind of mood or color, however you want to characterize it. Your
0: book is so analytical, and for somebody who is is a fan and with a with a general knowledge of jazz, but just been listening it to it my whole life, it, it gave me a lot of different filters and 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 ways of 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 appreciating it. But it's but it's obvious your admiration for somebody like Miles Davis, even though you you don't say it straight on in the book. And I thought it was very interesting when you talked about the idea that he was often criticized because. Instead of trying to perfect a given piece, he was more interested mm-hmm. in that experimentation and and extending that mood. And I thought, wow, if, if that mm-hmm. isn't the definition, that's a, it's a different kind of definition of an artist. But that really is an artist with a capital A, isn't it?
1: yeah I think so. I, I think just someone who's who's just restless and curious and um, just interested in you know just just giving given over to processes of exploration and doing it at a, at a really high level so uh, you know issues of kind of polish and those sorts of things that we sometimes um Think are the crucial element in, in great works of art. Um, I, I, I think uh, it's not to say that, that there's not polish, but I think at the same time there there is a level of kind of just almost like childlike curiosity and experimentation that's going on at the same time. And and, and you know it's just testament to the to the level of, of this, the the players that they can pull this off and and do it you know and, and take all these chances and do it in a way that um, uh, that doesn't you know, that that allows it to sound, you know, to me, fairly perfect uh, without necessarily a lot of, say, rehearsed polish or, you know, and you know that it's probably going to be different the next time it's it's done and all that. I mean, it's just a kind of particular way of of being an artist, I suppose, and, and you know, ties in with ideas here with, you know, improvisation and what improvisation really means and how many different levels you're, you're talking about improvisation and all that. Um, I, and I will say that... um even though the book is analytical and uh, part of it, my agenda was to appeal to practitioners and musicians, um, I think there's a lot of upfront description of the recordings and the compositions and, and some of the, the larger aesthetic things as well as the kind of place in, in, in jazz history too that readers that, you know, don't have the technical knowledge, you know, might, might still really, really enjoy. And, uh, you know, it was kind of designed to be uh, Somewhat of a reference source too, so that if people don't, they don't necessarily need to read it cover to cover. Um, but they might just, you know, pick out one thing if they're interested in this this particular album or this particular composition, and and kind of get a get a sense of what was going on and and maybe the way that that you know particular recording or that composition kind of resonates with other other compositions. Um, so um, yeah, yeah, that's that was, that's kind of the, the agenda I think for for me with with the book. Um, and, and also just to, just to pay attention and, and really highlight, um, I, I think, some significant accomplishments, um, you know, signal accomplishments and uh, some of the most vital and important ones in, in, in all of jazz, you know, at least as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, it, it it was really a a pleasure, Keith, and it, it was it was like getting a a private art tour at the Louvre, you know. But instead, it was you
1: know, insights <laughs>
0: in, in, insights into this this genius who w- w- literally. W- had this one period in his career where he was playing with other musical geniuses and they were coming up with with, yep. with new ways to in, interpret sound and rhythm. And, and we've come a long way mm-hmm. from from New Orleans. My gosh, who would have guessed in a million years <laughs> that, uh, that the traditional music of, of New Orleans would evolve to such sophistication and complexity?
1: I think it's, it's yeah. a miracle. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, with Miles... I mean, I mean, just just the fact that he, he went through so many different stylistic periods, and you know you're someone right. who were recorded and played with Charlie Parker and uh, people were writing him off you know back in the late forties as you know someone who you know kind of uh, came and sort of was going or went, and you know he not only did he not go but he kept coming back and kept reinventing himself um in in, in so many different ways and in so many fundamental ways too. Well,
0: uh, you're a pretty restless guy yourself, creatively, so you must be working on a new project. What is, what is that?
1: <laughs> yes, I have to say, I'm I'm, I'm looking at uh, this same time period of uh, jazz compositions um, from the from the 1960s, and some of the same figures appear, but I'm I'm not concentrating so much on the uh, compositions that they did with with Miles as the ones that they did on their own recordings, and in particular, I'm looking at the music of of Hancock and Wayne Shorter, who were members of Miles Davis's quintet, but but who uh, recorded uh, quite a, a bit on their own, in, in, you know, under their own name uh, for the Blue Nut label. And I'm also at the same time going to be looking at uh, Chick Corea's music too, from from that same time period. So the for Korea it's a little bit the, the,
0: well, fantastic. And do you still find time to perform? do you still get out? And I
1: do. Um, you know, live music is, uh, and live jazz music, um, is, seems to be not what it was. And I hope that it becomes what it was. And I guess I'd sound like an old curmudgeon that it's, you know, not like what it used to be, but, um, but venues and places to play, um, aren't as, you know, aren't as, um, available as, as I think they, they once were for, for players and, um, so I do, you know, when I can. I, I guess I do more concerts these days than than I do gigs, and that's fine. And I um, uh, sometimes these concerts are are designed with kind of particular ideas in mind. I, I played with Dave Liebman about a year ago or so in a in a concert that was devoted to to talking about Miles Davis and and the book and Liebman had recorded with Davis in the seventies. And so, um, so it was kind of a thrill for me to play with someone who had worked with Miles and and gets to talk, you know, to an audience about, about Miles and, um, and, and, you know, the repertory that I was I was interested in. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I play when I can. And, um, you know, which is sometimes frequently and then sometimes not. So it's just kind of, you know, depends on <laughs> what's going on at the, at the moment.
0: All right. Well, Keith, it was it was really a delight to read your book. I got so much from it and and it will uh, it will be a reference for me and it it actually uh, it actually turned me on to uh, a lot of things that I I never would have imagined or thought of and it really uh, really did a lot to enrich my appreciation and knowledge of jazz and I think you really contributed to the scholarship and a, it's a gem. So uh, it's really a pleasure well, thanks, really thanks. a pleasure talking so much. to you.
1: I, and I, and oh. Yeah, sure. And my, my pleasure. And I should point out, too, that the book is, is part of a series called, um, it's called The Oxford Studies in Recorded Jazz. And now there, there are a couple of other books out there, too, and it's part of the series. One is on uh, Louis Armstrong and his um, 1920 recordings with the Hot Five and Hot Seven. And the other one is on Keith Jarrett and the and uh, the, the Krone concert. So the uh, the series is devoted to either individual albums or, in my case, sets of albums, of, of, of an artist. And, um, and I think they're doing some, uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud to be part of the series and I think they're doing some, some really great, uh, great work and coming out with some really, really interesting books. So those, uh, jazz fans that are out there may just want to kind of have a look at, at what the series is, is doing in, in general too.
0: Well, it's, it's, part of my education for new books and jazz, and in fact, I did interview Brian Harker last month about his Louis Armstrong Ah, book, and I I just uh, enjoyed the heck out of it, and uh, I plan on reading the Keith Mm -hmm. Jarrett book, and I think there's one coming out on Coltrane, too, isn't there? I I believe so. I think there is. Uh, Yeah.
1: And I think Uh, the other one that's out is on on Benny Goodman in one of his Hall concerts.
0: I interviewed Catherine Tackley earlier this year about that, so oh,
1: okay. I might, okay.
0: I might okay. actually, so I might actually know something uh, in about jazz in about two years, uh, because I, I figured I'll, I'll stop, I'll start at the top of the line. So uh, it's been, uh, it's been great, it's, it's been great being a part of this. So uh, Keith, thanks so much. Yeah, I really yeah. enjoyed talking to My you. I was actually out at northern Colorado uh getting my doctorate in the 80s as I mentioned and uh uh-huh. you know I know the area well I I hope you're all okay out there I know you've had some uh some tough, uh, tough weather issues out there.
1: Yeah, yeah. Boulder, uh, certain parts of Boulder got hit pretty hard. I wasn't, um, wasn't hit too badly. So, um, you know, there were other people who were, who were very, very, um, you know, either inconvenienced or had to be put out or, you know, leave their homes or evacuate or homes were getting destroyed and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I kind of feel, feel for those people that. Uh, that were real kind of casualties of the, of the the flooding. All right. Best wishes to uh, Colorado folks out there,
0: Keith, and a real pleasure. Okay, to... thanks so much, Doc. You've been listening to New Books and Jazz with Doc Stull. Our guest today was Dr. Keith Waters from the University of Colorado at Boulder and his new book, The Studio Recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet, 1965 to 1968, published by Oxford University Press, 2011. Next time on New Books and Jazz, we'll talk with Derek Bang about his new book about San Francisco jazz pianist Vince Giraldi. The book, Vince Giraldi at the Piano. For New Books and Jazz on the New Books Network, this is Doc Stull.